Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I'm Dan Clancy. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of uh, speaking to you this morning. There's no place I'd rather be. I love this church, and uh, what a great morning we've had. Today I'll be talking about, I'll be continuing the series on Saturate. Saturate. I don't know why I said that like 20 times last sermon. I didn't have a hard time at all. But I'll be continuing the series. And uh, today what I'll be talking about is the family. And I'm going to be using a passage that is familiar to most of you. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I was young, when I was a teenager, I used to think a lot about what my life would be. I thought about my, uh, hopefully I'd be married I thought about my family, how many kids that I wanted to have. I thought about my house, you know, with a white picket fence and the pool in the backyard. I thought about, you know, all these things. And it usually was the best version of me. You know, no struggles. My finances would be great. I'd have this nice car that I was driving around. And for most of us, a lot of that just didn't come true, you know. A lot of it did, but some of it didn't. And uh, what I want to be talking about today, when it comes to the family, there's this tension. There's this tension that we all feel. Not some of us, we all feel it. And it's a tension between what is real and what is ideal. You know, we live in strange times. We are in a very connected world. There's Facebook, there's Instagram, there's Snapchat. And when I'm bored, I get on these devices. I get on these apps here, and I start looking through it, and I start looking at other people's lives. Have you ever noticed on Facebook, everyone has perfect families? They go on great trips. They never fight. They don't struggle financially. Their house seems like it's always clean when they take these pictures, and mine's a wreck. They're so fashionable, their life is just so interesting, and mine doesn't always seem that way. And then, we go on vacation with them. And wow, that's different. They must be having a really bad week. This isn't how they are in their virtual world. I always imagine them so much better. But we have this tension between the real and the ideal. For most people, what is real is this. What is real is that you're going through a divorce. What is real is that you're taking care of your elderly parents. What's real is that you might be taking care of your grandkids. What is real is that you might be a newlywed and you're really struggling. You thought the marriage would be so much easier than it really is. What's real is that you've got children and they're misbehaving. You might even have a prodigal. What's real is that your husband doesn't want to go to church with you. Or maybe this morning as you went to church, you were in a fight all the way to church or you were at a fight there at the house. For me, two weeks ago, what was real was I went to camp with this great group of teenagers that went to their own service. They're down in the youth room right now. And my wife was staying with the girls in their cabin. She was a counselor. And I was directing the camp, and we had our fifth grader. And so I'm like, well, I'll just take him with me. He'll stay in the cabin with me. We'll share a bed. We'll have a good time. We'll have great conversations. And since I was busy, 
I wanted him to have this really good week. So what I did was I set him up with a tab everywhere. I'm like, you can go paintballing as much as you want. You can go bowling as much as you want. You can play mini golf. You can go to the snack shop. They had this ice cream shack there. I said, you can go, and, it, and it's all on me, unlimited. You could do as much as you want. Every time I saw that boy, there was something in his mouth. Onion rings, ice cream, soda, candy bars. We had just eaten lunch in the, in the cafeteria, and then I'd see him 10 minutes later with this cheeseburger in his mouth. And my wife is on me. You know, she's like, are you watching Micah? Yeah, I'm watching Micah. He's having a great time. Well... This one day, it was really, really hot. And she's like, make sure that he's got sunscreen. Make sure he's hydrating and all this other stuff. I'm watching him. He's eating just like he was the whole time. And so anyway, we get to service that night, and she says to me, where's Micah? You know, that, in that tone that you always hate hearing as a dad, well, I don't know. I don't know where he's at. He's probably in the room. It was really hot today. The room's air conditioning. He's probably laid down and he fell asleep there. So my wife texts him and says, where are you? And he writes back, I'm sick. My wife looks at me, did you know he's sick? I'm like, honey, he's not sick. I've seen him. He's had food in his mouth all day long. He's not sick. But after the service was over, I went into the room just to check on him. And he was curled up in a ball on the couch. And there was vomit on his shoulder. <laughs> now, usually when he told me that he threw up, it's just like a little burp. It's like not like throw up, you know. And so he tells me, he's like, Dad, I threw up. And he points over to the bed that we're sharing. <laughs> I'm like, you're 12 years old. So I go over there. And I mean, there is a vomit all over the comforter, all over the sheets, all over my pillow. And as I went to wad it all up, my feet almost slide out from underneath me because there's vomit all over the floor. And what's worse was the trash can was two feet away. And next to the trash can was my suitcase which was open, and he threw up all over and in my suitcase. Who does that? Who does that? Who throws up in someone's suitcase? So uh, how did I lose my Father of the Year award was this. I was mad. I didn't show mercy. I made him clean it up. But dad, I'm sick. You're not sick. There's a difference between being sick and eating all this junk that you ate all day long. I'm going to have to take your tab away from you. You know, the poor kid, here he is sick, and I'm mad because he threw up all over my clothes. I probably wouldn't have been mad about the comforter or even the floor, you know, but when you throw up on someone's clothes, I mean, that's just like... Oh, it's personal, you know. <laughs> so, why do I admit that to you as we're talking about the family? What I want to do is I want to put you all at ease today. Is there's no father of the years 
Award people in here. No winners of that Father of Year people in here. We all have stuff. We just don't admit it. We all have stuff. We all have junk in our family. But we don't own it. We need to own it, but we don't own it. We hide it. And we need to face it. And often there's this tension between what's real, our real family, and the ideal family. We live in a culture that wants, that doesn't like tension. It wants to get rid of all the tension. So regardless of how dysfunctional my family is, regardless of how bad my marriage is, our culture wants to say, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Everyone's as bad. You don't have to fix anything. It's okay. But there's something inside of us, especially if you're a parent, that tells us is, you may tell me all you want that my dysfunctional family is okay, but when it comes to my family and when it comes to my kids, I want what is ideal. I want my kids to have a better life than I had. I want my kids to fall in love and to stay in love for a lifetime. I want my kids to move away but want to come back home one day. I want them to have a family that is Jesus-centered, not me-centered. And you see in this whole thing called the family here, when Jesus shows up, he takes what is ideal. And what he does is he blows it up. He blows it up beyond recognition, beyond what any of us can naturally do. Jesus raises the standard. And today, that's what I want to challenge you to do, is to raise the standard of parenting in your home. Now, I know some of you are like, I'm beyond parenting. Not in our society, you're not. You've you're still got kids. You're always parent. And we're all family. We're all here for one another. And for us that don't live up to the standard that Jesus asks us to live up to, Jesus offers us forgiveness. He offers us grace. Jesus refused to condemn those who fell short. But Jesus raised the bar. And a lot of times he said this, you've heard it said that it's actually, that it's like this. But I'm telling you that it's like this. Jesus told us to do really, really hard things. He told us to, to turn our cheek. He told us to go the extra mile. Things that didn't make any sense at all. But he wants us to live with the tension. He wants us to live with the tension. And when we fall short, he says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And when it comes to your family, I know because a lot of you talk to me, people, I see people in my office, I know a lot of you are discouraged. And I don't want to discourage you any more than you're discouraged. You might even be saying, Dan, my family is a mess. And preparing for this sermon, as I look through the entire Old Testament, this may make you feel good, I couldn't think of one good example of a family in the entire Old Testament. And there's a lot of families mentioned there. Then I started thinking through the New Testament. Is there a family that I would pattern myself after? I couldn't find one there either. But what I did find was Jesus' teaching on what the family should do and what the family should be. And today what we're looking at is Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at several verses here. I won't read the whole thing because of time. But it says this in Ephesians chapter 5, 
This is a verse you women hate to hear, but it says this, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Then in verse 26, in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that she might that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Then it skips on down and it talks about children in chapter 6. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with promise. So here's Jesus saying, you know, Paul, Paul is saying here is, this is what is ideal. This is the ideal family right here. The Bible tells us, love my wife. A lot of you are like, love my wife? Have you ever met my wife? She's as mean as a rattlesnake. It's hard to love a rattlesnake. Respect my husband? He makes so many bad decisions. He puts our family in harm's way all the time by his bad decisions. This guy is a buffoon. Obey my parents, teenagers. They're like, are you kidding me? My parents haven't had an original idea since 1990. I'm not going to obey them. And then it says, fathers, don't provoke your children. I always wonder why it didn't say just parents don't provoke your children. Why fathers? But I find myself in my family, why am I always the one that provokes everyone? You know, it's like I say things and everyone gets offended. But my wife could say anything, and she gets a free pass. But it just seems like whatever I say provokes. But in Ephesians, Paul is describing what the family should look like. And when I look at the list, and maybe when you look at the list, I think fail, 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 fail. So today, just for fun... Let's tackle the toughest one on the list, okay? We just read a bunch of them here. What do you think is the most toughest one? Which one of these verses are politically incorrect? Which one of these verses do most women hate to hear about? Exactly, exactly. So let's start with that one just for fun, okay? So why is this verse so important? This verse is so important. In verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. This one is so important because this specific application was given to everyone. It was given to everyone. Not just wives. It was given to everyone. Whenever a man comes up to me and says, Well, doesn't the Bible say blah, 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 in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, I always say to him, what does the first word of the verse say? And if they don't know, I'll look it up for them and hand them the Bible and let them read it. Read, tell me, what does the first word of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 say? And he'll say back to me, wives. And I'm saying, exactly. Paul was talking to wives he wasn't talking to you. There's a lot of ver there's verses that start with husbands. Why don't you start there? So ladies, I got your back, okay? So in this, 
would ask Jesus, they said, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God, love the Lord with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know I didn't quote the whole verse there, but the basic, when you sum up all the law there, is it can be summed up with one word, love. Love, love, love. Paul comes along and he's looking at his new Christian gathering that he has, his new congregation. And when he looks out over his congregation, he sees grandparents, he sees parents, he sees teenagers, he sees children. And he says to himself, you know, you know, all these people have normal issues just like you and I do. But Paul asks himself this question, how do I apply the teachings of Jesus to the family dynamic? This was all new. Loving your neighbor as yourself, this was a new concept. There had never been a family culture built around love. There had been a family culture built around respect, around discipline, but a family culture built around love, there hadn't been. This was brand new. You see, Jesus is turning this all upside down. Jesus wanted those of us with power to help those who are powerless, to use our power to help other people. And like I said, this was a brand new idea. So Peter and Paul, they come along and they ask this question, how does this look in the family? People love to quote this verse. Like I said, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. But let's look at verse 21. What comes first, 21 or 22? I know you're smart people here. It's 21, okay? So in verse 21, maybe this trumps verse 22. Verse 21 gives us this overarching principle that we're all accountable to. So let's look at verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to who? One another. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's the overarching principle. Are you ready for it? Everyone, everyone is to submit to everyone in your family. Did you get that? Everyone is to submit to everyone in your family. That is mutual submission. Then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 4, Paul tells, what does that look like for the wife? What does that look like for the husband? What does that look like for the child? He breaks it down for us. Mutual submission. Why? Why mutual submission? Out of reverence for Christ. I am supposed to submit myself to my family because they're worthy of it, because they're worthy of submitting to? No. I'm doing this out of reverence to Christ. This is powerful. This is life-changing. It's the principle of mutual submission. This is the way Christian families are supposed to do it. That means I'm going to leverage, me as a dad, 
I'm going to leverage all my power, all my assets, all my time for my family. I'm going to do that. Whether I'm a father, whether I'm a mother, whether I'm a child, I'm going to look for ways that I can get up underneath the burden and I can help for your sake out of reverence for Jesus Christ. That is what all of us are called to do out of reverence for Christ because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus got up underneath our burden. He leveraged his power. He leveraged his resources. He leveraged everything that he had, all of his authority, all of his position. He leveraged it for us. He put us first. He died for our sins. So we don't have to die for our sins. So what does this look like in my family? Just as Jesus our Lord submitted himself to people underneath his authority, so that everyone in our family should submit to one another. That's what he's called us to do, out of reverence to the Lord. This is really cool. This is one of the most powerful relational dynamics. I'm going to loan you my influence. We say to our family, I'm going to loan you my influence. I'm going to loan you my power. I'm going to loan you my status. I'm going to loan you my wealth for your sake. The message of mutual submission is this. Get this. Is that we're saying, I am here for you. I am here for you. Regardless of where you fall in the hierarchy of your family, regardless whether you're the dad, you're the mom, you're the firstborn, the secondborn, it doesn't matter. I am here for you. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he is here for you today too. And the thing that just blows us up is when we ask this powerful and wonderful question. Are you ready for it? Here's the question I want you to ask is, what can I do to help? Did you guys get that? What can I do to help? Now, let's all practice this together. I want to have you say it out loud on the count of three. I'm going to count to three, and then we're all going to say it together. Okay, you ready? One, two, three. What can I do to help? Okay, let's do it one more time. What can I do to help? Now, this is a game changer. If you ask this question, if everyone in your family asked this question at least once a day, it would change your family dynamic. Why? Because it's an offer. It's an offer of all that I am for all that you need. All that I am for all that you need. I tell the teenagers this. If you're a teen or you're a kid and you're in this room, if you ask this question, your parents might have to pick themselves off, off the floor. They'll be so shocked that you ask this question that they won't have a response. They'll be on the floor shaking. And the good news is you'll still get credit for asking it. Now, if you're really smart, you'll ask that question when 
they're around their friends. What can I do to help? And all their friends will be like, teach me, teach me. I'm not worthy. If you're a parent, you know that parenting can go negative really, really quick. You don't even see it coming. It just happens, you know, with all the hormones that are going around. But I'm going to challenge you to ask this question. Why? Because you know what happens when you ask this question, what can I do to help? It keeps conversations going. It keeps things from going negative. Ladies, one of the most powerful questions that you can ask your husband is this, what can I do to help? Most of the time, he's, he's going to say, nothing, nah, you can't help me, I got it, blah, blah, blah. And by asking this question, how can I help you, you're saying, I am aware. I'm aware of the burden that you have, that you carry. I am aware of the responsibilities that you have. Is there anything that I can do to leverage who I am, my time, and my ability to take a load off of you? Men, a lot of your wives are afraid to ask you for help. Because as soon as they ask you for help, they can feel the resistance. You don't even have to say anything. But men, when you ask this question, how can I help you? You're opening the door. You're letting your wife know that you're willing to leverage who you are and what you have for her. You're willing to leverage who you are and what you have for her. So let me ask you this. Why? This is so simple. All this is so simplistic. What is the barrier? Why don't we do this? Number one barrier for us not doing this is fear. If you're a kid and you ask this question, what can I do to help? A kid's fear is that they're going to be out in the yard all day pulling weeds. You're going to have them doing that. And if you're a parent and you ask that question to your friends and all that, what can I do to help? You, you know they're going to ask you to help them move. You're going to have to unload this truck or do something that you don't want to do. But a lot of times in Ephesians, chapter, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, when it tells us, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Imagine this. God's looking down from heaven, and he sees this big old messed up world that we live in. And we do live in a mess. And Jesus notices his father is concerned. Jesus looks down, and Jesus asks his father, what can I do to help? And God just shakes his head, and he says, you don't want to know. And Jesus says, no, really, what can I do to help? And God the father says, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life. And after thinking about it for a moment, Jesus says, I'm willing to do that. And God says, you're going to have to go down there. You're going to have to be number two. You're going to have to get in line behind every person who's ever lived if you want to go down there and help them. And Jesus says, I'll do that. Paul, who saw Jesus dying on the cross, said, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Church, what I want to challenge you is I want to challenge you to open the door to your time, to your potential, to your talents, to your treasures, to everything you have and make it available for someone else. 
This week, as you saw, we have a lot of teenagers going down. They'll be sharing the love of Christ to our community. One of the projects we're doing at night is we're doing a vacation Bible school for a local church and at Sherrick Road. I want to just challenge you in light of everything that's going on in this world, the mess that we live in, the racial divide that's going on, I want to challenge you to make yourself available, your time, your talents, your energy. What a beautiful thing. Last year, one of the things that happened is, I mean, there was a dad that came in one night, and we thought he was looking for his children, and he was just looking around, and, and we, so we said to him, well, is there anything I could do to help you? Is there anything that you need? And he said, my daughter told me that there's white people and black people worshiping together, and I just had to see it for myself. Now, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And in our world, that's what needs to happen. I'm going to challenge you this week. Just come on down to Sherrick Road. We're doing a block party on Friday night, even if I can't find anything for you to do. Maybe you can make some cotton candy or something like that. Maybe you can do some snow cones. But that's a beautiful thing, is leveraging who you are for other people. Your time, your talents, your ability. I'm out of time. And so I'm going to just challenge us to ask this question a lot and often this week. And that's what it's like to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It'll cost you a little bit of time. It'll cost you energy. It may cost you some frustration. But that's part of following Jesus. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much just for this time that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you would do amazing things in our family. I pray that if there's families that are struggling, that you would bring them back together. If there's marriages, that people would just love one another the way that you loved us. That they'll look to their spouse and try to meet their needs. Lord, I pray that you would just bring our church together. I pray that you would let us saturate this community. When people see our families, they say, there's just something different about that family. I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about their God. I want to know what makes them different. Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you as Savior, that right now, in the quietness of this room, that they'll say yes to you. They've been holding off for so long and pushing you away that this moment they will say, Jesus, come be part of my life. I ask this all in your precious and your holy name. Amen.